So I asked that question, I was thinking about that uh, this week. Um, one of my favorite movies is this movie, Chariots of Fire. Has anyone seen this? If you haven't seen it, put it on your college bucket list. Uh, it won a bunch of Oscars in 80, 1981. Um, and it's this great movie, and it follows these two characters. There's a Scottish uh, who's a man named Eric Liddell, uh, Eric Little, Eric Little, and then uh, a British man named Harold Abrahams. And they ran track for English, and they ran in the 1924 Olympics. And as they were competing against the world, the movie um, shows the two of them having this competition, this rivalry. And, it, um, and the two of these two men have completely different motivations for why they run. Um, Eric Little says this in the movie. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose, and he has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And he, when he runs in the movie, he like kind of throws his head back. It looks like he's laughing. Like he just, um, which I don't know how fast you go when you do that. But in the movie, for the sake, of it, it conveys this this reality that he he feels the pleasure of God when he runs. Um, and then you've got Harold Abraham, who in the movie says this. He says um, he's he's preparing for for the 100 meter dash in the 1924 Olympics, and he says this. He says, "Now in one hour's time, I will be out there again." I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Look down that corridor, the 100-meter dash. I've got 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Right? His motivation for running is completely different than Eric Little's. His is all about who he is, um, proving himself to the world. And so this led me to the question of why is it that people compete? Like why do we compete with each other? And if we're honest, we are like Abrahams most of the time, um, right? We see life as our 10 seconds to justify our existence. I went to Tulane University in New Orleans, and uh, Tulane was not very good at sports, at least the big sports when I was there. They're great at tennis, but they weren't so good at basketball and football. And so um, a taunt that we often heard at football games was... Or basketball, people would you know, they'd shout, scoreboard, score at us. And then we would cheer back. And I don't know if you guys, that's all right, that's okay, you're going to work for us one day. Is that, is that a wake force? That, like, sometimes it's familiar, maybe to close to home. Um, okay, what does that communicate? When that's a chant that's made from the student section, what does that communicate? Um, well, it communicates deep insecurity. And also it communicates that, that our worth... My security in a human is found in my triumph over others. Like, we were pretty insecure about our football game. Um, now, we wouldn't say this publicly, but it's in everything that we did, right? In middle school, like, what was middle school? Who runs the fastest mile? You remember? Like, I remember the kid who had the fastest mile time in sixth grade. Um, and everybody, it was, that was how you measured people's worth. Um, high school, um, who got the best grade on the test? Who got into the best school? Um, my, in my high school, who had the coolest car in the parking lot? Um, who was the captain, captain of the sports team? Um, who has a, got the most likes on Instagram? I don't know. This is, we, we measure the most. We're in this, this competition. College, um, way that you, the way that y'all you know, compare yourselves to each other, who gets the best summer internship? Or who got the best job offer? Um, who goes to the best place on vacation? Um, who throws the best parties, right? We're still doing this competition stuff. Um, as, a, as an adult, I don't know how adults do this. I was trying to think about this. Um, 
Like, who has the lowest golf handicap? That might be a thing. Um, uh, but people might measure net worth or... Um, um, and then I realized the thing that adults measure is who has the most successful kids. And then it just starts all over again, right? It's just this cycle of... Like it's about the kids' success and the kids raise up and then they're looking around and doing it again and it just continues to perpetuate itself. And, right, and you don't have to be the best. right? When you're, when you're sizing yourself up against someone, you don't have to be the best. You just have to be better than someone else. Um, you just have to be better than someone else. I know a couple who the husband is a doctor and they chose to live in a small, a small house in a middle class neighborhood. Now they could live in a big house in like a, a country club neighborhood, but they chose to live in a small house in a middle class neighborhood. Middle class neighborhood. Now, why do they do this? Why do they live where they live? Well, they, they said this. They say, growing up, we weren't cool. We were the nerds. Um, but now, now we're the family that everyone's trying to keep up with. Um, you've heard the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. They say, well, we're the Joneses on purpose because in their small little world, they're on top. And if this is the way that the world works, um, if this is the way the world works, no one's looking out for you, right? You have to look out for yourself so that you can justify this to yourself. And like, in their case, you can even make yourself look virtuous, right? You could, you could say something like, well, we live in a small house because we save energy. We don't need the extra space. We're not greedy like those supersized Americans. Um, right? We can justify this to ourselves. But underneath, it's rooted and in an unconscious belief that at its essence, the world rewards competition and only the strong survive. The world rewards competition and only the strong survive. And while competition marks the world, um, tonight we're going to see as we read together that in the church, we're called to live a different sort of life together. This semester, we've been reading the letter to the church in Ephesus, or in the Bible is called the letter to the Ephesians together. And this was written in 62, the year 62, by the Apostle Paul. And he was a Jewish leader who spent the first part of his career destroying Christians and um, persecuting the church and killing Christians. And then he met the resurrected Jesus and his life was transformed. And he started following Jesus and serving his church. And the letter, this letter has six, has six chapters, and so far we've read the first three chapters together, and what the first three chapters tell us is what is true about you in Christ. Um, they say, the first three, letter, first three chapters, Paul is saying, this is what's true about you because of what God has done, what God has done in Jesus, um, this indicative statement of who you are. And then the second three chapters, verses four, chapters four through six, moves to the imperative. Um, because of what's true, how then should we live? Knowing this is true, what are we to do? Um, how are we going to live together in light of what Jesus Christ has done? And so tonight we're going to read a section from chapter 4 answering this question. How are we to live together in light of what Jesus has done? Um, this is printed on the back of your bulletin. We're going to read uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Actually, it's going to be on the screen too if you don't if you need to read it. Um, verses 1, verses 17, and then the end of the chapter through the beginning of chapter 5. This is God's word for us tonight. Um, It's completely true and it is given to us in love. This is Paul writing. He says, I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do and the futility of their minds. Down to verse 24. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, 
Let each of one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so our outline for tonight, which is on your bulletin, is um, this statement that we are called to imitate God because we are members of one another as God's beloved children. So first, we're called to imitate God. Look at verse one of chapter four with me. He says, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, um, you should ask the question, what is that therefore, therefore? And Paul is saying that because of everything that he said in the first three, cha- first three chapters, he, he's, he's urging, he's begging the church to live in a particular way. So what did Paul say in the first three chapters? I'm going to try to summarize this for you in three sentences. This is what Paul said in the first three chapters. Four sentences. In Jesus Christ, God has created a new humanity. He's created a new way to be human. That in his crucifixion, in his dead body on the cross, Jesus Christ defeated sin and demolished the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And in his resurrection... And his body, risen from the dead, Jesus Christ has created a new humanity in himself. And in his ascension, in his body, which is now in heaven, Jesus Christ is now in heaven. And somehow we are there with him because Christ is our life. And Paul says that in Christ, God has chosen you, adopted you, and redeemed you as his own. And if you belong to him, if you've received Jesus by faith, he is calling you to live a life worthy of that calling. And so in chapters 4 through 6, Paul gives these instructions. How then are we to imitate God? And this phrase, imitate God, might sound weird to some of us. Um, Why? How do I imitate God? But imitation is how we learn. I mean, whether it's learning to play an instrument by watching videos on YouTube or working with a golf coach and, and learning to imitate their swing, imitation is how we learn. And Paul says that now that you belong to God in Christ, you're to imitate him. And that's what he says in the in beginning of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God. So how are we called to imitate God? Well, specifically, I want to look at five things that Paul says in these passages, in, in these verses. So verse, in verse 25, he says, don't tell lies. Instead, tell the truth. In Titus um, chapter 1, Paul says, God never lies. And so he's calling us here to imitate God with our tongues. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This matters. What you do with your words reveals who you worship. So if you're a Christian, you should be known at Wake as an honest, reliable person whose word can be trusted. And when you do shape the truth, when you do lie, why do you do it? Like, why, why do we do this? Why, are we, why, do we, why do we shape the truth? Why do we lie? I think it's because we're scared of people knowing our weakness or knowing where we don't measure up, or knowing our failure or inadequacy. 
and then judging us unworthy, right? Because the world rewards competition and only the strong survive. So first, don't tell lies. Instead, tell the truth. Second, we're to imitate God. Paul says in verse 26, don't lose your temper. Instead, ensure that your anger is righteous. And the Bible tell, teaches that there's two types of anger. There is righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. And God's anger is always righteous. Jesus' anger was always righteous. And this is a hard one for us because we almost never talk about righteous anger. And we have even fewer examples of it. John Stott, who's a commentator, says this. He says, there's a great need in the temporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blunt evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. We should be angry and not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. This weekend, uh, the churches in Winston-Salem, or a number of churches in Winston-Salem, hosted an annual event called the Forum for Faith and Culture. And this year, we had a conversation about race together, and a, and a handful of y'all were there with, with me at this. And on Saturday morning, we were at Union Baptist Church, which is a church I've never been to before. Um, and it's a predominantly black church, um, Baptist church in downtown Winston. And we were there with probably about 1,000 people in the room, um, probably 50-50, white and black. And our time together began with worship. And as we were called to worship, um, we, were, we were invited into a lament. And lament is a category of Christian worship where together we mourn um, and grieve the sin and evil and brokenness of the world. And um, the Christian saw the Psalms in the Bible, about a third of them are laments. I mean, this, is a, this is a category that God gives us to, to mourn over the brokenness of the world. And so we, we started singing some songs together that were laments about the particular ways in which um, we are broken in how we relate to one another um, and the racism in our country. And then at one point during the lament, um, uh, a young African-American man got up and he, um, he delivered a rap that was, it was really intense. Um, and angry and um, and righteous um, as he as he mourned publicly uh, the death of um, black men um, and women at the hands the innocent innocent black men and women at the hands of um, of police and in that setting usually when when there's someone up front and they're yelling I usually think they're yelling at me and I get really uncomfortable when someone up front is yelling I don't know if you feel that way but. I didn't feel that way when he was, when he was rapping and, and, and the anger that was coming out of him because there was a real sense that what he was doing was holy. That because we were in the worship of the church and because he was lamenting the way in which the world is not the way it's supposed to be and he was inviting us into his emotion, um, it, there was something that was righteous about his anger. It's like in Psalm 13 where the psalmist cries out, How long, O Lord? And Paul is saying that we need more of that. More be angry and do not sin. He also says here, do not let the sun go down on your anger. But what he means by that, he says, he means don't nurse your anger. Don't let your anger turn into bitterness and then poison your heart. Um, after, we, after this man rapped, um, the next song that we sang was this song. Um, I think they wrote it for the event. 
when, I think it was called Jesus is not just for me. And it was this, this sweet melody that we sang together in English and then we sang together in Spanish. Jesus is not just for me. And in that, there was this release in the room that we were able to, to move from lament into worship and, and into praise and into um, joining ourselves together and saying that the God that we worship isn't just for us, but it's for others too. And that freed us and invited us into Jesus' love for our neighbors and Jesus' love for our enemies. When Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, this means that if you're angry at someone, um, he's saying work it out before the day is over. Because if you don't, that seed of anger will grow into a plant of bitterness whose fruit is poisonous to your heart. So that's what he says about anger. Um, Third, verse 28, he says, don't steal, instead work and give. What Paul is saying is that if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you do your own work. This means don't cheat. Cite your sources, do your own academic work, and give to those in need. Help others. This means, what he's saying, I mean, for y'all, your work is your schoolwork. And so he's saying that the classroom isn't an arena for you to compete in. It's an opportunity for you to help others, to make the grace of Jesus known to your classmates. And those of you who do cheat or are tempted to cheat, why do you do it? Like, why are you tempted to copy other people's work or to, to, to copy large chunks of something someone said without citing it? Um, could it be that you're scared of not being good enough? Maybe the motive, could it be that the motivation is that you're, um, you're not measuring up, that your competition, um, this, this competition in you actually feels, fuels your cutting corners? Just question for us. What would it look like if Christians at Wake Forest were known for working hard and helping others? Like helping others out. Generous, not just with their materials, but with their time. So he says, don't steal, instead work and give. And fourth, in verses 29 to 30, he says, don't use your mouth for evil, instead use it for good. And the word for evil here is the same word that the Bible uses for rotten fruit. And when applied to our words... um, He's talking about words that hurt other people. He said, Paul is saying that our words are not to be weaponized to damage others or to destroy others, but to build them up. I was thinking about this. I was just thinking of people that I know that are particularly good at this. Like people who, when I speak to them, I feel um, encouraged and I feel built up. And I feel like they're, the way that they speak to me is always positive and never negative. Always building up and never tearing down. Um, but Paul is saying this is not not just for the select few who are good at this, but this is to mark all of Jesus' people. They were not to use our mouths for evil, but instead we're to use it for good. And then finally, fifth, he says, don't be unkind or bitter, but instead be kind and loving. And he ends by giving these six attitudes and actions that he says to be put away. To put, be put away. Bitterness, wrath and anger, clamor, slander, and malice. We could spend time on each of these, but... I just want to talk for a brief minute about slander in particular, because I think this is something that we experience in our community. Um, slander is speaking bad about other people, I mean, particularly speaking bad about them behind their backs. And I hear whispers from y'all about how you hear others talking about others behind their backs, how you complain about so-and-so or about this or that sorority or about this or that organization. And um, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. Like I, I'm way too reckless with my tongue. Uh, it is far too easy to feel far too good to say things, to say bad things about others behind closed doors. Um, there's a fourth century Turkish pastor named John Chrysostom. 
He said, slander is worse than cannibalism. Which is saying a lot, because cannibalism is really bad (laughs) and gross. And he's saying that slander is worse than cannibalism. What if we took that seriously in the way that we speak about each other? Paul's saying that there's no place for this in the Christian community, and we must reject it. Instead of this, we're to be kind to one another. The, the kindness is to mark our words and our hearts and our actions. And Paul's saying that this, this is all about imitating God. That all of this is the way that God's people are called to imitate him in the world. And a question that I'd just love for us to consider together for a minute um, is what would it be like if God spoke to you the ways that you spoke to others and you spoke about others? What would it be like if God spoke to you in the same way that you spoke to others or about others? I mean, what kind of God would God be if he was always making bitter remarks at us? Or what kind of, what would worship and prayer be like if we thought God had been talking about us behind our backs? Or had been putting us down to others? I mean, how would we feel if we thought we couldn't trust God to tell us the truth? Or if God was always losing his temper with us? This is why kindness is central to the Christian faith, because it's one of the purest forms of imitating God. And this is why you should do the excruciatingly hard work of not lying and instead tell the truth, of not losing your temper and instead ensuring that your anger is righteous, of not stealing and instead doing your own work and giving to those in need, of not using your mouth for evil, but instead using it for good and not being unkind or bitter, but instead being kind and loving. Because it will reveal to the world that you belong to Jesus. And look at the end of verse 25. Look what he says here. The end of verse 25. It will reveal that you are members of one another. Paul is saying that the work that Jesus has done to bring people together in Christ so knits us together that we are part of one another in the same way that body parts are part of the same body. And he's saying that we are to imitate God in our life together because he has made us one body. I think one of the primary reasons why we end up competing and why we end up doing awful stuff stuff to one another is because we forget that we belong to one another. We forget that Christ is our life and our membership is in him. What would it look like to live like this is true? To live like we were actually members of one another. I want to tell you about a city in Greece called Akaria. Akaria is a small island It's 99 square miles, and it's home to about 10,000 Greeks. And it's about 30 miles off the western coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea. And there's a unique thing about this island is that the people on Icaria reach the age of 90 at two and a half times the rate that Americans do. That means that Icarian men are particular, are nearly four times as likely as American counterpoints to reach 90, often in better health. So the longevity of their life is staggering. The actual lifestyle is very Greek. They have lots of feasts. They drink lots of wine. They have an active, active intimate life. Um, they're not just a bunch of like paleo-conscious senior citizens. So why do you think this is? Like, this is a question that people have. Why would it be that, um, that this group lives past their 90s and are healthy? All of them. Um, see, we would do some, We would attribute this to external factors. We would say, well, it must be their diet or it must be their genes. It must be genetically disposed to having this sort of longevity. 
Um, well, the, the reporter who wrote this art, article about the Icarians and the Icarians themselves attribute to a deeply integrated communal life. Um, they have a community with a shared vision. Dr. Larry Addis, who's one of their few physicians, says this. He says, people stay up late here. We wake up late and we always take naps. That sounds great. He says, I don't even open my office until 11 a.m. because no one comes in before then. And he points across the Aegean towards the neighboring island of Samos. And he says, just 15 kilometers over there is a completely different world. There, they are much more developed. They have high-rises and resorts and homes worth a million euros. In Samos, they care about money. Here, we don't. For the many religious and cultural holidays, people pool their money and they buy food and wine. And if there is money left over, they give it to the poor. He says, it is not a me place. It is an us place. And interviewing a local woman, um, she said, do you know that there's no word in Greek for privacy? She declared, when everyone knows everyone else's business, you get a feeling of connection and security. You're not likely to ever feel the existential pain of not belonging or the simple stress of arriving late. Your community makes sure you, make sure you always have something to eat, but peer pressure will get you to contribute something too. You're going to grow a garden because that's what your parents did and that's what your neighbors are doing. And at day's end, you'll share a cup of seasonal herbal tea with your neighbor because that's what he's serving. Several glasses of wine may follow the tea, but you'll drink them in the company of good friends. On Sundays, you'll attend church, and you'll fast before Orthodox feast days. Even if you're antisocial, you'll never be entirely alone. Your neighbors will entice you out of your house for the village festival to eat your portion of goat meat. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying that in Christ, we are members of one another. We belong to one another. The, the church is not a me place. It is a we place. When I first read this story, it was published in the New York Times in 2012. When I first read this, I like, I want to go to there. Like, that place sounds amazing. And are we all searching for that kind of belonging? Like, that's why people say Wake Forest, like, like why they love Wake Forest, because it promises this community. Or why we join fraternities and sororities, because they promise membership. But the problem with these memberships, whether it be an Icaria or belonging to Wake Forest or being a sorority or fraternity, is that it's a membership that excludes. Icaria only works because it's a small island and we're not on it. Wake Forest only works because 70% of the people who apply that didn't get in. Your fraternity or sorority only work because they have to cut people. And in that exclusion, these communities create insecurity. And insecurity leads to competition and the world rewards competition and only the strong survive. And competition leads you to talk about that other girl in RUF behind her back because she's part of a different sorority and you don't like the way she recruited that freshman. And it's competition that bubbles up every year at this time because people are trying to figure out housing. And instead of seeing as an opportunity to imitate Christ and lay down your lives for one another, people inevitably use it as an opportunity to recruit the people they think are the coolest. And people always end up being excluded and hurt. And it's competition that causes you to treat one another as stepping stones to your social or personal achievement and not as members of Christ's body. All of this stuff that Paul says are not to be part of the church. Lying, losing your temper, stealing, using your mouth for evil, being unkind and bitter. All of this is born out of competition. So if the church is plagued by the same sorts of rivalries and competitions as other institutions, how is it different? How is the church different? How is it any different than the rest of the world? Look at chapter 5, verse 1 with me. He says, 
Imitate God as beloved children. The way that it's different is that it is made up of the beloved children of God. Going back to chariots of fire. Do you remember how I said Abraham's and Little described their motivation for running? Eric Little says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And Harold Abraham's, when he said, I look down that corridor with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. How different are those two? And what is different? Abraham's is running to justify his existence. The universe rewards competition and only the strong survive. This identity is deeply insecure and it creates and it requires competition and it will always exclude others. And compare, compare that with little. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. You hear the security in that identity and knowing that he belongs to God's family. I heard a story the other week about um, a family that adopted a little girl from China. And when the parents told their biological children who were little, when they told them that they were adopting um, a little girl from China, the children got horribly upset. Uh, They got so angry with their parents. Like, why would you bring another child into this family? There are enough children here already. We don't need any more kids. And what was at root of this this anger, what at root of this was, was a fear. Um, It's a fear that there won't be enough of my parents' love to go around. A fear that somehow these children could lose their parents' love. That because they're sharing it with a new person, that somehow um, they would end up with less of it. And how did these parents respond? Well, they told them that they loved their children. They told them that they loved them, that they would never leave them. They told them about the joy of loving another child who didn't have a family. And when the children discovered that their parents' love was secure and that the adoption was an opportunity to share in their parents' joy, they were all in. Friends, if you are secure in the love of God your Father, it frees you to love his children without fear and without competition. And here's why this is different from the world. In the world, you have to do something to belong. The only way into a particular membership is to do the right thing. And if you are judged unworthy, you aren't let in. It's a deeply insecure identity, and it leads to competition, and it destroys us. And that's not the way it is in God's family. Jesus, who is God's only non-adopted son, lived the life that you should have lived, and he died the death that you deserved for your sin, so that you could be adopted into his family. And the way into God's family is adoption, and this happens by faith. The way to become one of God's beloved children is simply to believe, to look at his son, Jesus, who gave up his life for you, and to say, I trust you. I want to be a part of your forever family. And then everything changes. Your life will go from Harold Abraham seeing your life as 10 seconds to justify your existence to that that quiet confidence of Eric Little, that you can run or do whatever it is you want, knowing the pleasure of God, feeling his pleasure. Abraham's identity was contingent on him running the race. And it didn't matter if Eric Little won or lost. That didn't affect his identity because his identity was in that he was a child of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, for your word to us tonight. Thank you for this passage in Ephesians. I want to pray that you would help us as a community, help us to um, live in this.